0: Hi everybody, little disclaimer here. You're about to hear an amazing show. We did have some tech issues, a few glitches, and some ambient noise in the episode. But I will tell you, this is an amazing show. And remember, this show comes with major medical. Comprehensive. Enjoy. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ed Krasnick, my partner, Jennifer Kalari. coming up shortly. We're the show that talks about mental health and teaches mental health skills. You heard me right. There's nothing wrong with your hearing, because mental health is more than a topic. It's a practice. And we do the comedy of mental health. There's a lot of comedy around mental health these days. Everybody's talking about it. Nobody's doing it. Uh, but it's a fun it's a fun premise. The show has an attractive benefit package. We have medical, dental, eye, chiropractic. We have a shaman stipend. We have plant medicine allowance. As long as you're in network, if you're not in network, you're on your own. I cannot help you. Our guest today is a comedy legend. I mean, I love, I I think I, I don't know if he's going to remember this, but I got lost driving him to an interview we did uh, up in Marin County. One of the few comedy legends i've ever driven in my life but i we almost got lost and we almost got eaten by wolves an original saturday night live writer when saturday night live was saturday night live winner of five emmy awards for his work in television including the great it's gary Shanling show one of the most creative shows ever which he co-created and executive produced the late show with david letterman i think you've heard of that curb your enthusiasm writer author of 11 books and a new movie called Here Today starring Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish. We're going to have Alan Zweibel with us in just a bit. If any component of mental health is about learning to live in the present, there isn't any culture that is less equipped <laughs> to deal with mental health than the Jews. Because if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding or any Jewish event, it's it always starts with we're gathered here to honor the union of whomever, and now let's talk for an hour about the people who could not be with us today. And away they went. You name your kids for people who have passed away, which is a wonderful honor, but it can be very heavy. At one point, I have been a spiritual uh, seeker my whole life, and I actually went to a shaman. And the sh- I knew it was a shaman because she had a business card that said Malibu Shaman. She uh, definitely legit. She looked at me, she talked to me, she asked me a few questions, and she said to me the words, your ancestors love you, and they are killing you. That's the Malibu Shaman, ladies and gentlemen. I thought today we could talk a little bit about our, our relationships with our moms, because yesterday being, being Mother's Day, and I'm the king of evergreen, so this will be good. It's, every day is a Mother's Day to me. I have too many great stories about my mom, uh, I toured the country doing a show that was largely about my mom. Great storyteller, one of the funniest people ever, lived her life with humor and compassion and a unique ability to turn darkness into light. She really did. We got each other and we liked each other beyond being uh, mom and son. We actually liked each other as people. A lot of craziness, too. Not going to sugarcoat it. My family was a who's who of despair. They were like a Hebrew posse. They would attack from right to left. Everyone was there on a weekend. But it seemed like every weekend we would head off in a 1966 aqua colored Chevy Impala with a temporary gas cap. And we would be on our way to a funeral preceded by a nursing home visit to people that we knew and we didn't know. All of our outings had me sitting next to my mom in the car and she would, we'd start talking. And she'd say, you know, you remind me of my grandmother. I shared a room with her as a kid. Whatever I needed, if I needed a dress iron, whatever I needed. You know, she was someone who was great to talk to. I loved her. Now, my own mother was what they call schizophrenic, see? Yeah, she heard voices, everyone but mine. And then we go up to the cemetery, and my aunt's funeral was happening. Her body's being lowered into the ground. All my mom can say to me was, I just hope I have enough food back at the house. Who knew your aunt was so popular? Everyone came, everyone tell you what, if they don't have enough food back there, they can dig a hole right next to her and throw me in it. All right. How do you like it? She was everyone's friend, but she never really learned that it was okay to be a friend to yourself. She grew up around this family. If there was a wing, there was the Krasnick Crisis Center and Gift Shop in the Mental Illness uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, My mom had a sweet and low wallet but I will tell you this right now, we need people like the great Shirley Krasnick in the world and I wherever she is, I hope she's having a good time and completely free and happy. We thought we talked today about how you self parent, where do you learn to become a friend there's no school for these kinds of skills parenting self parenting how to take care of your thoughts and feelings how your brain works. That's some of what my partner does. Jennifer Kalari is a child and family therapist Her organization called ConnectedParenting.com. Teaches resilient skills, parenting, self-parenting, media courses, books, and more. She is the first lady of oxytocin. She is the grand marshal of the Olympic games and the Sultan of serotonin. So I thought we could learn, we could talk about the most complicated relationship that we have the strongest, the relationship of a mother. How do we learn to mother rather than smother? Ourselves. Now, we always welcome people no matter where they're at emotionally, and here are a few emotional shout outs for our listeners. If you're beating yourself up right now because you've forgotten that it's Mental Health Awareness Month. Welcome. If your reaction to the second COVID shot was dreaming about the Zapruder film, welcome. If you're concerned about the new right wing cough syrup coming in voter suppression formula, welcome. If you want Elon Musk to install a chip in your brain that can order from Grubhub, welcome. If you catch your journal yawning at you, welcome. If you mistakenly wash your North and South Civil War reenactment uniforms together and everything is now purple, welcome. And as I say, if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. We're brought to you today by No Brainer. No Brainer is a new app that helps you respond to difficult, unwanted, repetitive thoughts in your head that no longer serve you. You can transform thoughts like I suck into I have luck. You'll never make it into I'm enough. Everyone's better than me into I'm doing the best I can right now. Learn how to read your own headlines and start making your own news from page six to page fix. Do I like to rhyme things? Sopamine. Sopamine is the first dopamine infused soap on a rope. If you're coming to the end of your rope, this product both washes and lifts you up where you belong. Cope on a rope with Sopamine. I want to bring in our, our special advisor, the First Lady of Oxytocin, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, I thought we'd talk for just a minute about Mother's Day. I know you're a mom, you've had a mom. This can be a really complicated relationship. How do you learn about how to relate to your mom? Where do people learn these skills?
1: Mm, That's a really good question. It's funny, like a lot of things with human beings, you don't learn it. You just sort of intuitively absorb it. You don't teach someone how to be a mother. You are a mother. When you're in a place where you can operate from love, not fear, or know how to toggle between the two, that'll put you on the right path for being a good parent. Honestly, you have to be in a good relationship with yourself. That's the number one relationship in your life is the one between you and you. For
0: any of our Jewish friends that are listening, let's do a special version for them <laughs> because like that is a it is a uh, it is a complex, it can be a complex uh, complex relationship and every culture, it seems like religions are really based on the past. It's based on honoring where we came from and not necessarily where we are. So how do you teach people to not future think and to not past think, which is, we talk about it all the time. If you're thinking in the future, you're connected to anxiety. If you're thinking to the, about the past, you're connected to depression.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's interesting because we certainly have to honor the past and we learn from our past and there's lessons. And if we don't learn them, we keep getting the same lesson. So that's important. Um, but I think it's so important to teach kids that living in the now and being present in the moment is actually the only place you really have control. The truth is we can't control conditions in our lives. We can only control how we respond to those conditions. So I think a lot of it is by is by demonstrating this to your kids. Live this way. Say it out loud. Show them, hey, what am I doing, folks, in the past? I need to be in the now. What can I con-? like? Literally acting this out in front of your children and saying it out loud is good modeling for them. It shows them. That's how kids learn. They intuitively learn by watching us. They are watching all the time, all the time.
0: So so you could really do things. You could do things like, I mean, I think role reversal and role play and just not at times that are emotionally charged. But if you really want to hear what kind of parent you are, ask your kid to do an impression (laughs) of you.
1: Great idea. Yes. Very eye-opening. Do that.
0: And, 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 then, and then you will know. So you ask your kid to do an impression of you or your spouse, and yeah. then you do them.
1: I love that idea. And you could have a lot of fun with that. And then you have to be honest with yourself. You have to, don't get offended. That mirror back is what they see. I mean, I'm sure we've done through love and, and humor, but the truth is that's how we learn about ourselves. We never see ourselves the way people see us. We know often as parents that it's coming from this place where we want them to be okay and we love them. And or we're scared for them. And, you know, we think it sounds so much better, but if you actually listen to yourself, you'd probably be shocked, right? We, we very rarely look or sound the way we think we do in our head. It comes out very differently to other people. And then the other piece I was gonna add it is, you know, I don't know, let's say you're stuck in traffic or something and you're, you're yelling and this is ridiculous and catch yourself in front of your kids and go, wait a second, what am I doing? I can't really control this. How can I look at this differently? How can I have a different experience? What's good in this moment? What am I happy about in this moment? And demonstrate that, model that for your kids. And it, it doesn't have to be so serious. It can be fun.
0: Would you talk for a second, and then we're going to bring on our, our special guest for today, just for a minute about cognitive rehearsal, about mm-hmm. what that is and how that could be simply used in everyday life.
1: The brain likes things that are familiar, and our brain thinks in pictures, basically, and it and, and feelings, it doesn't really understand words. So if you're nervous about something or you're gonna try something new or you wanna make a big change in your life, rehearsing it in your mind, and, and Ed, we talk all the time about imagination, but like really seeing it and hearing, hearing the sounds and seeing the color and filling in all of that stuff that makes it quite real, really tricks the limbic system, the part of the brain that reacts to the world and goes into fight, flight or freeze, That part of the brain can't tell the difference between something you're imagining, something you're remembering, or something that you're actually doing. So if you can rehearse things in your mind and add that detail, you're actually rehearsing it to the point where you, when you do it in real life, your brain thinks, oh, I've done this. This is familiar. This is not new. And it'll go so much better. So you can actually deal with all these things without ever being there. And then when you actually get into that real moment, it goes a lot better.
0: And you could actually rehearse it with somebody. So if you, mm-hmm. if it was your spouse, if it was a significant other, if it was a kid, if it was your, you know, your boss, whoever, you could actually rehearse these things, these things that you're worried about, going to a party. We talked to one of our guests, Jimmy Pardo, about anxiety about going to parties, and said, so, "Well, you act it out. Yep. You do it beforehand. You practice it because mental health is a practice,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and the idea is to practice it."
1: Well, And you can't just do it once and be like, okay, I imagined it once. I'm good. Like do it a few times. I mean, listen, we spend so much time worrying and stressing and overthinking. You're doing that already. So use that mental activity in a positive way. That's actually going to help you in the future. If you have time to worry, you have time to do this cognitive rehearsal. You do
0: okay we'll always be rehearsing you know this is exactly like uh Gary, Glenn ross except it's always be rehearsing instead of always be closing what a good time to bring on our special guest there are comedy there are comedy legends this is one of them this guy is a founding writer of saturday night live an original snl writer A great collaboration for many years with Gilda Radner, a great collaboration for many years that continues on with Billy Crystal, and a new movie called Here Today, starring Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish, writer of 11 books, winner of the Thurber Prize, winner of five Emmy Awards in television, one of the greatest shows ever made, one of the top 100 shows in Rolling Stone magazine's recent issue of the best comedies of all time the it's gary shandling's show created it executive produced it late show with david letterman curb your enthusiasm we could go and it goes on believe me it goes on alan's why bell alan i it is it is a pleasure to see you i see you right now you're you're in your you're in your office there are pictures you look pretty
2: happy i'm exceedingly happy how are you
0: Not well, Adam. Not well. No, no, no. no, I'm fine. I'm fine. The movie is here today. It co-stars Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish.
2: Yeah. And Billy directed it and he and I uh, co-wrote the screenplay. Yes.
0: Can I just ask you, what makes you guys such great collaborators? What is it about Billy and the way that you work together that makes it you know that that brings about this kind of collaboration. What what are the qualities that go well, into well,
2: it? I've been really lucky, you know, through the years. You know, whether it's Billy or Larry, David, uh, Dave Barry, Gary Shandling, Gilda. I, I understand. I learned early on that when you collaborate with somebody for them, you at best are vice president because they have to say the words. So you know, with Billy and I, we date back to 1974. I had moved back in with my parents after college, Uh, he lived four towns over, he was married and had a, a child, and when we were both hanging out at the comedy clubs, he would pick me up every night, we'd drive into Manhattan, we'd tell our jokes, and on the way back, we'd listen to the cassettes, and we'd give each other notes, you know, say it this way, maybe if we word it that way, whatever, and through the years, It's the friendship where I just realized that we're in tune with each other, you know, with any collaboration, writing team wise. And I've had many of them, the the subtitle of my most recent book on memoir called Laugh Lines, my life helping funny people be funnier. And that's really important because that's funny to begin with. The same things make the two of you laugh. That's what's the initial attraction but you realize that there's 10 to 15% difference between the two of you, which is really good, which means that the alchemy of whatever you produce is something that neither one of you could have done alone. What I do when I'm writing with somebody for them, I I check my ego at the door, I'm there to service them. Because even if I write something, dialogue or otherwise, that um, they're not comfortable with, even if I'm right, it's going to be wrong because they're not—they're not going to say it with conviction, all right. So it's not going to work. So I'll say to them, "All right, this is the point I'm trying to make here. If you agree with that point, let's figure out another way to say it that you're more comfortable with." So it's a little bit of a dance, and Billy and I have been dancing since 1974.
0: It's amazing the the people, the great collaborations uh, that you've had, and and saying it in that way. I can just see because it's not it's not about fighting for jokes, right? Because the the intention is different. You're serving the other the other person. You're collaborating.
2: Well, I, I'm I'm working on a movie script right now with the great director Barry Levinson. Now we're we're writing the script together. But if he says, Alan, I want to shoot this scene this way, I'll write according to what his vision is, what it will look like on its feet and on the screen. So once again you're vice president in a way but you choose your you choose I don't I don't mean fights literally but you choose those moments where you go all right look I don't necessarily agree with you this is why I think we should do it my way and if I still can't make the person uh, believe that like I said we try to tweak it and so it's like okay you get it you're more comfortable with that I think that point should be made it's taken who you are and what your gut says, and you're putting it, oh, it's, you're, you're 1A. <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: I mean, years ago, I was, on the, I was on a show with George Carlin, and we were in a green room, and it was like 8.30 in the morning. It was radio. That's how long ago this was. And we came, we came in, and he was furiously writing on a pad, and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm writing as I do every single day and every single morning. I'm constantly writing. Why aren't you? <laughs> and, and that was George yeah. Carlin. And I know you write every single day. My question to you is: How much of it is that you love writing, and how much of it is this is the way your brain is oriented, and this is what's best for your
2: mental health? Well, it's both, and you've got to resign yourself to the fact that uh, this is the curse. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that I, um, I've been born with. I love writing. I wake up 5:30 every morning, seven days a week. And I do my work, and I sit down with my vocabulary, and I figure, all right, which words in which order do I put this stuff in? I love the puzzle of the whole thing. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by it, and it challenges me. If you're asking me if it's a every day is a day at the beach, I would be lying if I said yes. You know, you, you know, Ed, it's hard to turn your brain off. Neil Simon once had a piece in the New York uh, Sunday Times and the arts and leisure section, I guess it was the week that one of his plays was opening on Broadway. He described the comedy writer as a two-headed monster. One head is going through life. You go to the dentist, you get stuck in traffic, you go to the ATM, and then another head without provocation or even announcement suddenly emerges and hovers above and 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 then writes down and makes fun of the life that the first head is living. Okay, so that is I think you're wired that way. You know you can hone your craft and you can learn shortcuts and you know say things maybe a little bit better with experience. But by and large, I think that that's the um, the wiring.
0: What happens when you wake up in the morning and you're depressed? You feel depressed. What happens to the writing then?
2: Uh, you try, you know. Look, if I wake up five thirty, some days by six thirty, I'm going. Oh God, I'm not going to have it today. I, I just won't. And it's six thirty in the morning, and my day is done. You know. <laughs> so I, I think when you're when you're younger and you're just starting out, the tendency is to stay at your desk, hoping that the muses will find you. Okay. Later on, you realize that. Um, You know something? Maybe I'll go for a walk or a run. Maybe I'll go to a movie. You know, my friend Dave Barry, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, humorist, uh, he and I have collaborated on four books now. And when I did my memoir, I called up a bunch of my writer friends and I said, what do you do about writer's block? And Dave said, he says, I handle writer's block the same way I do constipation. I just sit there waiting for something to come out. (laughs) 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 And, you know, so we all have our own methods of breaking through the the depression. Sometimes the depression acts as a catharsis. And what you write is therapeutic in its own way, even if it's not about what you're depressed about. It's an exercise of sorts. But, you you know, early on in the day, but, oh, boy, maybe I should... um... Get dressed and go outside for a while.
0: <laughs> and bringing in, you know, issues, conflict, things that you've st- struggled with in your personal life. How much of this finds its way into your stories, into your films, into the shows? You know, how do you transform that stuff? Because right now, this movie here today, and I think I got it right um, this time. Maybe is is really part of it is about dementia. And I wonder if that, if you've had experience with that.
2: Well, what happened was I was a guest on The Letterman Show, one of my many guest shots on it. I had anecdotally told a story about when I was the prize of a silent auction. Somebody would bid, you know, people would bid, and then whoever bid the highest got to have lunch with me. And the big day came and I drove into New York. I'm speaking to you from Jersey where we live. I paid the toll. I paid for parking. I went to the restaurant, and I asked the young woman who um, won the uh, silent auction how much she paid. You know, because I have friends like Larry David; they'll pay a hundred thousand dollars to watch him brush his teeth. She said twenty-two, um, and I'm going, gee, twenty-two hundred dollars isn't Larry David money? But that's not there. She says twenty-two hundred. It's twenty-two dollars. Twenty-two dollars is what it took to win having lunch with me. And she said that it started bidding started at 20 dollars and went up in 50 cent increments so at this point i hate her okay so um we're um eating and she ordered a seafood salad the size of my high school and she's chomping away on a you know lobster tail and you know oysters and clams and stuff and at one point i'm looking across the table at her and her ear is turning a little red and now the eye is starting to droop uh-huh. eventually her lips are now perpendicular to the floor okay and he was having a, a, a allergic reaction to the seafood and I'm sitting there trying to figure out okay how just how far do I does my obligation go to this contest winner and <laughs> I'm, I'm a nice guy I took it to Lenox Hill Hospital here in New York she didn't have insurance. I bought her an EpiPen. So what cost her $22 <laughs> cost me over $1,100. Oh, no. so I told <laughs> the story, anecdotally, on The Letterman Show, Billy called me up the next morning and said that should be the first scene between an older guy and a younger woman, like a May-December relationship. So we started writing realized very early on that there's got to be more to it because we've seen those kind of jokes and neither of us wanted to write that movie. My dad was having the onset of dementia around that time. Billy had an aunt, the same thing. So we said, okay, the older guy is a comedy writer on a TV show, he's got a mentor kind of position. Just the way when I was at SNL and Billy had it, when he came to SNL, a man named Herb Sargent, who was a great influence, on both of us. He didn't have dementia, but because my father and Billy's aunt did, we gave that character was starting to get dementia. Um, he was writing a, a book, which was an ode to his deceased wife. He was struggling with it and he wanted to get the book finished before he lost all of his words. Wow. And he meets uh, Tiffany Haddish and they become really good friends. It's a, um, platonic love affair that they have. And once she realizes what his problem is, she becomes his muse. So we took all these different factors and put it into the situation and put it into each one of the characters. So we did draw in real life.
0: Amazing. That's, that's a great uh, story about the, you know, about how, um, how an auction can turn into a real prize
2: it's a full-length feature movie yeah that's
0: That's fantastic you have so many stories that i love but i want to take you back to you know the beginning of snl and Uh really this thing where you're a young writer and you come in and there's john belushi there's chevy chase there's everybody and it's day one and it's 30 rock and this is the dream and there you are, and I think you're having a panic attack at that point. What's going well, it, on?
2: It wasn't so much a panic attack as, as much as it was, you know, these there were these geniuses there, and I at that point I was a joke writer for stand-up comics in the Catskill Mountains, who told one-liners and they projected outward to an audience. You know, they wore tuxedos, and they all shared the same a set of false teeth. They just passed it around, <laughs> sort of. I look and I go, oh, man, they were doing improvs. They were creating characters and little scenes just before the meeting started. And I'm going, I don't think I can, I can't measure up with them. So um, I got nervous. I looked in the corner of Lauren's office. I saw a potted plant. I went behind it and I squatted down. That's the biggest day of my life. First day, uh, first meeting of this new comedy show. And um, I'm squatting behind a plant. And that's um, that's how gracefully <laughs> I handled the whole thing.
0: And what happened then? What what changed you? How did how did you get out from behind the plant?
2: I heard a girl's voice at one point from the other side of the plant say, "Can you help me be a parakeet?" <laughs> okay, and I parted the leaves and I looked out it and it was Gilda and I said, "What?" And she said, "Yeah, I think it'd be really funny if I you know scrunched up my face and stood on a perch." And spoke like a parakeet but i need a writer to help me figure out what the parakeet should say are you a good parakeet writer i had no idea what she was talking about but i was thrilled that somebody was talking to me so i said yeah i'm a great parakeet writer and she said good and then she said how come you're hiding behind the plant you nervous i said yeah a little she said your first tv show alan i said yeah how do you know my name is alan she said you're the only one wearing a name tag so um uh, she said, is there any more room behind the plant? I said, I think so. Why? She, it was her first TV show, too, and she said she was nervous, so she came around, and now me and Gilda met each other squatting behind the plant. Aww. It's, fan- it's great
0: just, story. just so fantastic. How many sketches, how much writing, how much collaboration, and what kind of a friendship you know, transpired between you two? You really became best friends.
2: Well, when I wrote for everybody, I wrote the Samurais for John Belushi, wrote an awful lot of Weekend Update. I did a lot of sketches, but Gilda was, um, we really hit it off. Yeah, not only did we create characters, I had a big hand in a character she had called Emily Latella, a little old lady who was sort of hard of hearing and misheard editorials and would come on Weekend Update and give editorial. Editorial replies against such pressing issue as uh, saving Soviet jewelry or uh, presidential election. <laughs> I think the lowest we ever got was saving endangered feces. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we we collaborated and came up with another character that was very popular called Roseanne Rosanna Dana. So that yeah. was our baby, but you know our friendship um, exceeded, uh, I should say, succeeded Saturday Night Live. She moved to California, and um, but she became, when we moved out there, she became Aunt Gilda to the kids. And uh, her last TV appearance was on uh, It's Gary Shanling Show. This is already when she had cancer.
0: Yeah, can you talk about that for a minute? Because by the way, congratulations again, because Rolling Stone Magazine, one of the best comedies of all time, one of the most creative comedies of all time, It's Gary Shanling Show. And, and we'll talk about Gary in a minute. You convinced her to come on
2: the show. Well, you know, something that took a little bit of convincing because she she loved Gary. She loved the show, but she started getting a little cold feet. You know, she um, she was my platonic friend. You know, Um, she was my best buddy. We were never boyfriend, girlfriend, although I wanted it to be different. Um, She insisted (laughs) that we be platonic. And that's how it was through all the years. And uh, we're walking on the beach one night and she w- got a, a little hesitant. And then she said, because uh, she was afraid that nobody would um, recognize her. You know, her hair was shorter and she didn't look the same. Hadn't been on TV in six, seven years at this point. Just as I was about to say to her, don't be silly. She actually said, but I have to come on your show. uh, uh my comedy is the only weapon I have against this fucker. That's what she called it, the um, the cancer. She personalized it. She said, swybell can you help me make cancer funny? Which is a sentence you don't hear a lot, but the night we shot the show, um, we had written some cancer jokes for her. Shanley was doing an opening monologue. The audience didn't know that she was gonna come on. It was a total surprise. And when she knocked on the door and, and Gary let her in, and he said, hey everybody, it's Gilda Radner, the place erupted And an applause I I've, I've still to this day haven't heard. And then it got very emotional. When I went to edit the show, the angle of the camera that I wanted of her entry, I saw the picture was jumping just a little bit, very subtly, and I couldn't figure out why. And then I remember the night that we actually shot the show, the cameraman, the guy who was on that camera was had been crying. And so his hands, when he were holding the stirrups, you know, were shaking just a little bit. If you ever see that episode, look for it. It's, it's subtle, but I left it in there as a tribute. She was nominated for an Emmy for that appearance. They thought she was in remission. She, Gary, and I started working on a, creating a show for uh, HBO, where she would be like a Carol Burnett kind of character, where she had her own TV show. You'd see her at home. You'd see the writer's room. And I still have the notes that we took somewhere around here in one of the files, and then the disease caught up with her again. All she wanted me to do was to make her laugh. That was my role in her life. When she got sick, you know, I had I would call and tell her jokes. Gary and I would do a show every week and uh, send her a, a cassette, like a Hallmark card, and my I had to make my platonic friend laugh. That was my role. And even when I went to see the Sinai to give blood, I was lying on the gurney, and a nurse came over and gave me a pad and a pen, and I said, what's this for? She said, well, Gilda likes to know whose blood she's getting. Write something nice. She's having a tough time. So I wrote, dear Gilda, I knew I'd get some fluid of mine into you one way or another, which um, <laughs> I would it sort of nicely, I thought. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, this is that's so fantastic. But th- again, there's a theme that keeps coming up, and it's this collaboration and it's being of service to some to the other person. It's being the vice president instead of the president. So, where did you learn that? Where does that come from, the vice president?
2: It, it was an instinct that I had, and it was reinforced a couple of times, even with those Bosch Bell comics. I would hear someone say they would read a joke and go, I don't want to say that. I don't wanna say that that way. I remember having a couple of run-ins with Gilda, the same thing, and even with Shandling. And Gary was a little strong-headed. And then there were a couple of times where he would say to me afterwards, you were right, okay? And and it's not that I wanted to be right, it's always about the work. It's about the the piece, the, the episode, the play. So with the exception of a few cases, which were learning experiences, I quickly learned that, okay, they have to be comfortable as if they said it themselves, as if they wrote it themselves, okay? It's got to be, sound organic. So it was, like I said, there were a couple of mishaps, a couple with Gilda, a couple with Gary, but by and large, I'll fight for something, like I said, but if I make my point, this is why we have to have this kind of beat, now, if you agree with me, let's figure out a way that you're comfortable saying it. It just seemed logical to me, Ed. Yeah,
0: I'm just going to ask you a little bit about Gary, and then I want to I want to bring in Jennifer for, about this because a lot of the skills that you're talking about right now
2: sound like the skills of a marriage. In a way. well, yeah, there's a, there's there's compromises, but in a marriage, I think it's a little bit more. You're on an even plane, and you help each other, and one and one equals three in the relationships that I'm describing, no matter how you want to exalt it, you're still providing a service for the other person.
0: Like I said, it sounds to me like a marriage. And <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so, so, okay, so here's Gary. Now, here's the thing. I mean, we had Wayne Fetterman on the show, we had Judd Apatow on the show, and we talked about the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, which I know you were part of, of course, also. But what I didn't realize about Gary Shanling, what I didn't, because I didn't know, I mean, I knew him, but I didn't know him anywhere near what you guys have, have lived with him, is how conscious he was of the voices and of what was going on with him and how hard he worked to, communi- to communicate with himself, to be aware of himself and to make choices and to work on you know, his own self-esteem. Did you know that while you were working with him?
2: I learned very quickly. You know, uh, what made me laugh about him was what was self-deprecating. What made me laugh was he was able to look at the world and um, see it through. There are certain people that, you know, let's assume everybody is talented, okay? There are certain people who are on a different plane than everybody else. Uh, My friend Larry David looks at the world in a way that I can see the same thing he does, but he sees it from a way that I couldn't. You know, Gary was one of those people. There was a guy who wrote on the show SNL when I was there named Michael O'Donoghue, who had founded the National Lampoon before he came to write for SNL. He was another guy like that. Dan Aykroyd was like that. They look at the world, just the same picture, but differently. Gary was one of those people. We made each other laugh liked each other a lot, whatever trait that I had, whatever component I had that allowed me to marry my wife to whom I married now 41 years, three kids, five grandchildren, Gary wasn't able to do that. And that angst and that inability was not only a great source of discomfort to him, but it's also the angst that provided him with his sense of humor. Anybody you speak to, whether it be Judd or you said Wayne, uh, we all knew Gary and in the case of Judd. You know, when I watched the Zen Diaries of Gary Shanling, I, I was in the first episode because that covered the It's Gary Shandling show years. But when I watched the second episode, I learned a lot about him. I knew that he was very spiritual. I didn't know this spiritual. Um, I didn't know he had taken it that much further. Uh, the Buddhism and everything, since we ended our show. So I learned a lot from it. If you look at that second episode, he talks about comedy writing. He talks about writing from the core. Get your story down. Get your characters down. The jokes will come later. And yeah, that's a basic tenet of any comedy writer. But Gary would put it in spiritual terms. You know, you go over Gary's house. He used to have those basketball games that I played in. And it was great fun. Whoever was in town we went over there. We played basketball. Whether it was Ben Stiller or Kevin Nealon, Franken played in the fuse. So did Bob Costas. Whoever was in town, you know. But the fact of the matter is, if let's say the game was at noon, I'd get there at ten to twelve. There would already be oh a bunch of people, young writers there who was listening to Gary talk. And if we would leave it too, they'd still be there. Gary was a mentor. Uh, there's there's writers out there, including Judd, including a guy named Ed Solomon who wrote all the Men in Black movies and Bill and Ted's, you know, excellent adventure. Who will tell you they learned how to write from Gary? So he was a teacher in a way. He was a very very multi layered, very complicated guy who was incredibly uncomfortable in his skin.
0: Jennifer. You know it's it's really powerful and interesting to listen to Alan talk about being, being able to put yourself second. How does that work in relationships?
1: Well, it's so beautiful, and that's I think what worked. You know you started out the episode Ed talking about don't mother, don't smother. I mean, it sounds like Alan, you have this beautiful gift to just see the magic in the other person and bring it out of them. And that genuinely sounds like it comes from a place of love and uh. knowing that that's going to happen versus fear it's got to be my way and they won't they don't do it this way it's not going to be funny it was never about that for you it's about bringing out that that beauty and that talent and that other person and you said putting the ego aside which a lot of people can't do but there are such gifts for the world and for yourself when you're able to do that but it's not easy
2: I appreciate that you know look there were some people that you know I, I wrote a um, I collaborated with Billy Crystal on a one-man Broadway show called 700 Sundays, which was very successful. It won a Tony. And what was so wonderful about the experience was not so much the success of it, although that was a really fun ride. The reason I cherish it is, here's my friend who trusted me with his family. The title 700 Sundays was very basically, his father worked six days a week, Sundays was their day to go to ball games, bowling, the beach, and his father died suddenly when Billy was 15. So he figured out that he had roughly 700 Sundays with his father. Mm-hmm. Wow. So this was a this was an ode, a very funny, very touching ode to his family, uh, his parents and extended family. He trusted me with them. And I had great respect for the fact that he trusted me to put words in their mouths and to, and to treat them with care and give them their own little scenes. That's what the takeaway was. The takeaway is always the process. It's not the product. Product is out there, you release it, and it's in the hands of a different God, whether or not it's successful. But what you remember is the day-to-day. Were you happy to go to the set every day or to the office every day? Who did you become friends with? Who did you end up hating, you know? And I've done things that were successful. I wouldn't want to do do it again because the process was grueling and vice versa. Certain things that were not successful but, oh, yeah, that was the movie where we became friends with so-and-so. Oh, yeah, remember we rented that house in Hawaii because of that scene. I, I I think it's very much about the ride that you're taking.
1: Yeah. Yep, that's very true. Alan,
0: there's something that keeps ringing in my head. I don't know, a story you told once, and it was about a Paul Simon song and being a student in maybe an elementary school or grade school.
2: Well, it's actually college.
0: Okay, again, I get it wrong, but
2: go ahead. When I was in college, it was the early 70s, and the Vietnam War was raging. And so you wanted to keep your 2S deferment so you wouldn't be draft eligible. And I was at the University of Buffalo. I was failing this creative writing class. And had I gotten an F in it, I would have failed out of college and would have been draft eligible. A last-ditch effort The last assignment we had in this creative writing class had a 92-year-old teacher. So I handed in the lyrics to Paul Simon's song, The Boxer, (laughs) thinking that she's 92, she'll never recognize it. She hands back our journals on Monday, and the good news was she did not recognize it. The bad news was that um, she was so impressed that she wanted me to come up and read it to the class. Uh (laughs) You got to understand the class were all 21 and 22 year old kids. Like myself, everyone had record albums. And she wants me to go up there and read the liner notes to the biggest selling album of the year. It won like nine Grammy awards. You know, I get up in front of the class, you know, begging off at first saying, Gee, I don't like talking in front of groups. And she prevailed on me and I got to the front of the class and um, I looked over at her and, was very disappointed to see that she was still alive and then i just started reading you know i am just a poor boy though my story is seldom told i've squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles such are promises all lies and jest still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest i take a breath i look over the paper and i see everyone in the class their mouths are open and they're going the fuck (laughs) all right and the teacher did not recognize this and she was beaming like i this jewish kid from long island somehow captured the grittiness of new york streets and she urged me to go forward so when i left my home and my family i was no more than a boy in the company of strangers in the quiet of the railway station running scared laying low seeking out the poorer quarters where the ragged people go looking for the places only they would know and then the whole class just started singing la la <lalye, la 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 and, and I look over the 92 year old teacher is beaming and she's going she says to the class, it's uh, it's inspiring isn't it <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: I love that story. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We're going to have to uh, end the show, unfortunately, but Alan, please come back. I I want to, I have a lot more stuff. I'll
2: be back. Thank you, Alan. Okay. Thank Um, you, Jennifer. Thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure.
0: And I want to tell everybody, if you're going to subscribe, you can do it at makelightmedia.com, M-A-K-E-L-I-G-H-T.com. You can listen, you can share, you can subscribe, you can write a review, whatever you do, we'd love you to do it. Please. Look for Here Today because you can see it and you can read the short story that's based on by White Bell called The Prize. You can look at Laugh Lines, how it made funny people funnier. You can see all of Alan's work, which is always incredible and always inspiring. And watch the It's Gary Shandling Show, which is one of the hundred best shows by Rolling Stone magazine. It is such a pleasure to see you and thanks for doing this.
2: Thanks for having me, Ed. Take okay. care, Jennifer. Good meeting Thank
0: you. you. Thank you so much. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari. We will see you next time on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast.